This is the Lotox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host, and today is show 253. Uh, I'm really excited about this show. I loved happening upon Greg Peterson, uh, founder of The Urban Farm in Phoenix, Arizona, over in the States, uh, when I was putting together this uh, group of shows about connecting to uh, the source, connecting to food, connecting to farmers, looking at different people are farming in different locations, respecting our soil, respecting our community, turning waste into a treasure of a resource and something new. Uh, I really wanted to uh, represent urban farms because I think they're a really important piece of the puzzle in greening our cities, in localising food supply, in preventing uh, the disastrous um, food deserts that we see in large urban areas. You might have heard me talk last week. Or actually, I was talking on someone else's show, so (laughs) I might tell you guys just now a quick story. When I was doing some community work with a an organisation who were based in the third lowest socioeconomic um, suburb of Australia, Uh, and I was chatting to locals, asking about how they managed to feed their kids, what they fed their kids, what they found easiest to get. Um, outside of the food bank that supplied a lot of the local families. Uh, And you needed a car to get to the supermarket because it was across a six-lane highway. But you could walk to any number of the fast food chains, uh, the big-name fast food chains. And to me, that is a travesty. And how we remedy that, as you look around... um, because a lot of these suburbs have a lot of land, interestingly, is we get people growing food and we get backyard chickens and uh, we start to build um, beautiful little ecosystems in on all the land that we can and it starts to empower people, it starts to give people access to fresh food, it therefore improves health, mental health, And these are conversations we need to have on a much bigger scale, uh, I believe. And it's certainly uh, one of the joys that I have in my mind as I release this new book coming out next week, Lotox Life Food. Uh, If you're listening back at a later time, then it's already out. You can go get it. Um, But it's available online everywhere. And uh, my favorite thing about being able to focus on this is to start these conversations, to amplify these conversations, to see how we can create change, not just out there um, with um, farms in regional areas, but for those of us who live in the city right here. What can we do on our windowsill? What can we do on our balconies? What can we do in the tiny little patch? What can we do in the front garden, on the verges, in the community garden? There is no excuse uh, to sit back at this point. And if you can't do the work, it's about supporting the locals in urban areas who are, whether that's buying uh, your honey from a rooftop beehive uh, beekeeper, 
uh, or um, doing some crop swapping or uh, visiting uh, your local urban farm and supporting them. So today I'm talking to Greg Peterson, who is an absolute powerhouse when it comes to showing us what's possible in an urban farming context. Uh, He grew up for decades. He's lived in Phoenix, Arizona. He did not want to go and farm in the country. He wanted to make it happen in uh, in his favorite city and boy, has he made it happen. And I'm not going to talk too much about Greg here because we go quite deep into his history and how the urban farm got started in 2001 in the show. So I'll hook into that in a little minute, but I want to remind you that as we power through September, if you're listening live, you have the benefit of two wonderful offers. One, Oz Climate, the Winix Air Purifier, Uh, is available for all Aussies and they are giving you an extra 10% off the already discounted price of their air filters. Now, why would you want an air filter? Couple of reasons. Uh, I know a lot of us are worried about bushfire smoke, unfortunately, worried about bushfires in general, really. Um, but it really is one of the best things you can have in your home if that is something that impacts you in your region. Uh, or if you know that there's backburning done and you regularly exposed to smoke, you really do want to filter your air. It's unbelievable how quickly a bit of backburning or a bushfire can impact the air quality in your home. Uh, if you think about it, my little Winix air purifier that I have in our bedroom. Um, which does me just fine, the compact model. It's wonderful. It has a traffic light system for when the air quality is bad and when it's good. When we fry, uh, 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 saute some veggies or fry a steak, the air quality is compromised. Just to give you a little idea, and it goes yellow and sometimes even turns red with that very small thing. Um, so if you can imagine the impact of bushfire smoke on our health, it's huge. Uh, other reasons you might want uh, to look at an air filter is you might live in an urban area or you might live in a regional area where you know pesticides are being used. For me, it's a no-brainer and the Oz Climate Winix air filters are just wonderful as your Aussie option. Uh, Lotox Life at the checkout is your code or you can give the guys a call and I love um, that they do this. They still honor the code with phone orders um, because you might want to know what you need, what sized unit, what type of unit, if you've got pets, uh, if you've got um, mold, if there's a dust mite allergy in the family, there might be a whole host of reasons that you need an air filter and you want to make sure you're getting the right one for the size of your space. So give them a buzz, use the code LOTOXLIFE and get your 10% off. Another offer that we have, of course, is the Air Doctor, uh, and this is a wonderful filter option for our US listeners. I'm so excited to have an offer for you guys as well. If you haven't come across Air Doctor, it's a fantastic air filtration system uh, for all the same reasons as you might want an air filter that I just talked about. If you're based in the US, head to the show notes, lotoxlife.com forward slash podcast, click on today or last week's show, and you have up to $300 off their top model uh, for this week only. It's finishing, uh, whereas the Oz Climate one for the Aussies goes through right till the end of September. 
So whether you live in the US, Canada, or here in Australia, you have air filter offers this month. I'm so excited to be able to broaden um, the scope of our offer. I hope uh, you get a chance to make the most of it. I know they're a really big ticket item and that can be all the difference when you can get a discount uh, to get across the line and grab one for yourself. So enjoy those and enjoy today's show with the wonderful urban farmer, Greg Peterson. Hello, Greg. How are you? Hey, hey, I am great. That is is, good. uh, Here in Phoenix, Arizona, it is uh, quite toasty though today. It's um, uh, about 106, which I think if my if my math is done correctly, that's about 42. That is. Yeah, that's the, mm-hmm. so. We have a few days like that in Sydney over the summer, yeah. but we don't like them. <laughs> right. Oh, wow. Well, we have many days, yeah. like over 100, usually over 100 degrees. So, yeah, I remember when um, I was first diagnosed with mold illness and SIRS, uh, the international community was like, Phoenix is like one of the best places you can go. It's hot and it's dry and Mm -hmm. uh, mold just can't live there. Um, So I've always had it on my radar. I'd actually quite like to visit. It looks beautiful. It looks like such a a great part of the world. Well, you can't, you can't view the picture in back of me and say, this is Phoenix. Mm, I know. This is my urban farm here in back of me. So, yeah. So when you're in somewhere like um, in a climate like that, and we're going to dig into this more in the podcast, um, you would think that it would be really hard to grow things and have lush urban farm settings, but you've managed to do it. So I want to ask you to start up um, our conversation today. Uh, when I was digging around doing my research, uh, it jumped out at me that at the age of 12, probably because my son's going to be 12 tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, it was when you did a desert gardening course. Um, and uh, my son's passionate about gardening. He's very much into succulents right now. That is his thing. Oh, right. Uh-huh. Uh, on his balcony garden, he tends to it religiously. It's a beautiful age, I think, for for absorption of information at a really deep yes. level all of a sudden right Big and time. so and so what was that course for you like what did you just want to soak up like a sponge and what changed for you as a little human back then so we got to think back when that was mm. uh, and that was in the mid 1970s so it wasn't actually a course that I took it was more like a course that my life went on mm-hmm. you know like the that was my got it destiny people ask me you know how on earth at the age of 14 did i know that we were overfishing the oceans because in my biology class in eighth grade i wrote a paper on how we were overfishing the oceans i have no idea it's just what i was supposed to be doing so around that same time i planted my first gardens and uh, luckily my mom grew up on a farm she didn't spend a lot of time there but she kind of knew how to grow things so she taught me and when we moved into the weldon house it had a big backyard. And she said, Greg, see the right half of the backyard. That's your garden. Go start digging. Oh, wow. How special. Yeah. And it, you know, it's been a, for me, this has been a lifelong journey starting back, even at the age of nine, I wanted to get a fish aquarium and grow tilapia because I knew that we could grow tilapia and eat them. Mm -hmm. So and that's called aquaculture. And so at a very young age, so actually at the age of 10, I got a 
paper route. Back in the 70s, we could get paper routes to make money. So I got a paper route and I went out and earned enough money to buy my first fish aquarium. And, uh, and then at the age of 15, I stumbled across a uh, business that a friend, a friend, an acquaintance of mine was running. And uh, he used to clean service and build fish ponds here in Phoenix. And so at the age of 15, he said, Greg, you want to go clean a fish pond with me? It's like, muck out a fish pond? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> and when we got done that day, I had so much fun. And when we got that done that day, he said, you know what? I'm, I don't want to do this anymore. Uh, would you like to take it over? Uh-huh. So he actually gifted me a few of his clients and this concept of cleaning out fish ponds. So when I was 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, I'd go out on a weekend and I'd make, you know, 500 or a thousand bucks cleaning out some, slopping out somebody's fish pond. Wow. But at the same time, I was really interested in aquaculture. Uh-huh. And in 1981, so I was 20 in 1981, I actually designed on paper, I still have this, what we would now call a regenerative fish farm. Because back then I was on the Arizona Aquaculture Association board. We would travel around to different fish farms around the state. And what I was noticing was the tremendous amount of waste. Mm. You know, they would, a lot of them would clean the fish and they would throw away the waste products from the fish, which is perfect fertilizer, mm. you know, wherever away is, right? And so I got really curious. And again, I, I didn't put one of these in the ground, but on paper, I made all of the connections so that every piece of excess that we had on a fish farm would be used because mm-hmm. fish, you know, what's left over with the fish that makes great fertilizer. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was raising crops with the uh, fish fertilizer and on pa- again, all on paper, but that's where my mind was at. Yeah. As 40 young, years ago as a young man. And uh, yeah. it, it's really interesting because we've just had a, a book come out by one of our top investigative journalists, Richard Flanagan here, um, on the toxicity of the salmon farming industry oh, in uh, southern Australia. Um, breaks my heart. It is. I don't eat fish horrifying. anymore. Yeah, it's tough. It's do not eat fish anymore because mm. of that. Mm. Because of the toxicity of the the wild caught stuff is the toxicity. Uh, coming out of the water, out of the ocean, which basically the ocean is our big toilet, right? You know, it's it's downstream from everywhere on the planet and there's seven billion, seven and a half billion people throwing stuff away. I was just at the beach last week and uh, several days I carried a plastic, you know, a plastic trash bag. We did the same. To collect, to collect yeah. the trash that was on the beach and it just makes me sad. So um, mm. yeah, I can't, unfortunately I don't eat fish anymore because of the toxicity of it. Oh, and then the, then the farm raised stuff is usually, you know, has growth hormones, exactly. not always, but uh, antibiotics and, you know, crud in it that, you know, we don't want to eat. We don't even need to go there. Let's talk plants today. <laughs> All right, cool. <laughs> um, it's a happier story at least. Um, well, so here, let me, let me fast forward if you don't mind. Okay. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Uh-huh. Uh, let's fast forward to the 10, the, the, the one years each decade for some reason that magic happens for me. So I was born in 61. God knows what happens when I, and when I was 10 and 71, 81, I designed this regenerative fish farm in 1991. 
I discovered a book called Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Mm-hmm. It's a it's a fiction story about how we came to be the way we are, the dominant force on this planet. So the book's Ishmael by Daniel Quinn. Just go get it and read it. It'll change. You'll it either down. love it. You'll, you'll either love it or you'll hate it. It'll change your life forever. That same year, a couple other things happened for me that were like mind blowing. Uh-huh. Number two was I discovered permaculture. Ah, brilliant. And permaculture is about regenerative design. So remember 10 years earlier, I designed this regenerative fish farm. Uh-huh. I didn't call it a regenerative fish farm back then, but now I, that's what I call it. And for me, when I discovered permaculture, it was like, wow, there's something that I can call the way that I think. Yeah. Right? You were so a designer. The, and so it just worked yeah, perfectly. Yeah, exactly. So the third thing that happened in 1991 is I did a, a, a workshop at Landmark Education. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're basically they're a breakthrough webinar uh, seminar company. And I was to create a vision for my life. And the vision I created was that I'm the person on the planet responsible for transforming our global food system. Hmm. Now I don't, I don't, I don't see that as like a responsibility as it's hanging around my neck, dragging me down. I feel it's, it's what gets me up in the morning. Mm -hmm. And it's still true here 30 years later, but then there was one more thing that was the catalyst that just blasted off my life. So remember Ishmael permaculture landmark, a friend of mine went sailing in the South Pacific and he came back and he said they anchored in an Island Mm -hmm. and they were looking for a grocery store and everybody kind of looked at them funny. Yeah. Said, (laughs) Go pick your own. And that directly correlated with a lot of the work that uh, Daniel Quinn wrote about. Uh, You know, Daniel Quinn said food used to be free. So it's like, wow. All right, let's figure out, this whole urban farming movement. I live in a city, so it's urban and how to grow our own. So fast forward 30 years. And my goal is to transform our global food system by sharing with people how, you know, how easy it is to actually grow food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so, so from there, obviously you, there were a few steps, um, was it from your garden, you then just kept thinking bigger and bigger? How can I expand this? So I actually moved into the place that's called the Urban Farm, now the mm-hmm. place where I live, 32 years ago. It was 1989. Wow. And I bought it specifically because I wanted to grow food. I wanted to garden. So at the age of 28, I knew that, man, it was time to get gardening. Mm. And I spent most of the 90s learning, mm-hmm. taking classes, Um, I, I always hated, well, early on in life, I hated college, but I, I didn't like the structure of it, but I never stopped going to college. So, uh, by 1999, I actually decided to go back to university and I had, I had taken something crazy, like 40 different classes over the decade of the nineties on different topics of stuff that I was interested in. Mm. And you know, wastewater management or solar energy, how to run a small business, you know, just whatever topic came to mind that I was interested in. I went to the local uh, community college and I learned about it. So I spent a lot of time learning uh, about life in the nineties. Mm-hmm. 
and you know what how I'd like to contribute. And I ended up at university, Arizona State University. And in 2001, again, I had to write a mission and vision for my life. And what that became was the vision for the urban farm. Mm. My urban farm is right in the middle of the city. If you stand on the roof, you look 50 miles in each direction, um, you're going to see, see city. And what I, what I had by 2001, what I had created was the beginnings of my edible landscape. Right. And so I created the urban farm in 2001 basically as an environmental showcase home and yard in Phoenix that I started opening up to tours in 2001. And there were Saturdays in 2001, 2002 that, uh, you know, I'd do a tour and nobody would show up. I'd take the tent down and put it away and I'd do it again. And now 20 years late, literally 20 years later, uh, when we do a tour here at the urban farm, I have to schedule three to five of them on a weekend. Wow. We'll get anywhere from, 30 to 60 people per tour that mm. want to see, you know, a, a, a developed organic urban farm in Phoenix that, you know, is specifically grown with permaculture principles. And um, yeah, so I, I have what's called, and Dirk Lokes, uh, uh, that's his dad, Zach Lokes recently uh, was on my podcast and he talked about what he has dubbed an old growth food forest. Mm -hmm. And that's what I have here at the urban farm. I have been growing food in these garden beds for over 30 years. And when you walk out into my yard, front and backyard, there's just things growing. I have one garden bed in the backyard right now with cantaloupe and peppers and cow peas growing in it that I didn't plant this year. I didn't plant them last year. I don't know when they got planted in my yard, but they just sprang up. So um, yeah, that's kind of the trajectory of my life and what I do here at the urban farm. How beautiful. And is there a reason you chose to stay in the city rather than uh, go out and farm expansively regionally? I believe that given we have a very toxic food system, Mm. And a big part of what makes it that is the environmental impact of growing food and shipping it for thousands of kilometers and thousands of miles. Yeah. That the environmental impact of that is huge. And I have a personal belief that the, with a capital T, solution to our global food problems is to activate the local food systems and local farms. And that could be a, a container farm with hydroponics in it. It could be aquaponics, it could be gro- growing in the ground. Um, but actually growing the food where we live. And so going back to your question, uh, why did I choose to stay in Phoenix? Is because I was, I was moved here when I was six. Mm. And it was really all I knew. Mm. I, don't, I, don't, I didn't know where else I would go at the time. So it was just... You know, it was where I was at and I was making the biggest impact where I was at. Mm, Brilliant. And do you feel like, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, but we could never grow enough food in the city, uh, you know, to feed everybody. 
Do you disagree with that? Like, do you think we've actually just got to start and start proving to ourselves how much we could actually grow if we really tried? Number two. Yeah. Because there, there is, here's the thing. I live in a neighborhood. On my street, there are 24 houses. Nobody grows their own food except me. Wow. And a new neighbor that's just recently started. And those 22 houses, so let me actually step back here. When I went back to university, I one of the things that I did to make money early on, this was in 2001, 2002, 2003, is I farmed my front and backyard. Mm. And I was growing enough food in my front and backyard to make two or 300 bucks a week and, wow. get, a free, and get a free lunch. Mm. Um, so every Wednesday morning, I would get up super early. I would harvest what was available in my yard. I would take it to the farmer's market. Um, I would sell what I had. Anything I had left over, I took to my friend Susan at the Calico Cow and said, here, this is what I got left over. It's all yours. She fed me lunch. <laughs> I love it. For that, for that, 20 years ago, I was making two or $300 a week mm. and, you know, growing enough food to make two or $300 a week. Yeah. So, you know, I, I have this vision of 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix and that's the beginning. And I think that if we had with doing the math, we'd need to between 70 and 80,000 urban farms in the Phoenix metropolitan area in order to grow enough food for Phoenix. And here's the cool thing. When I was growing food and taking it to the market, I was spending eight hours a day on Wednesday to pick it, package it, harvest it, get it to market. And I was spending a couple, three hours the, during the rest of the week to tend the garden. Yeah. A stay-at-home mom or dad, a high school student, mm. um, you know, grandma or grandpa, the kids, they could all be raising food in their front and backyard and sharing it with their neighbors. Here's what I tell people. There's uh, starting your urban farm is really simple. You grow food and share it. And I don't care if you're sharing it with your friends and family or neighbors, you're a now an urban farmer and then name your farm. The urban farm. I is love a it. Known, yeah. The urban farm is a known place here in town. People know it. And there's 8 million. Uh, no, sorry. There's 4.8 million people in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And a majority of them know what the urban farm is. Yeah. It's, it's developed a space for itself and a movement. And, you know, I don't know if there's 10,000 urban farms in Phoenix yet, but I know there's three to 4,000. That's fantastic, isn't it? So, yeah, I think we could grow enough food in the cities. I mean, they did it in Cuba. Yeah, exactly. And are, they, are, you, are you harnessing technology in any way, like apps for people to be able to say, hey, I got extra tomatoes. Like I know there's a few apps like that around. Yeah, those, those are out there. It's not, you know, I was in technology, so I, I'm an entrepreneur. Mm. I've had over 30 businesses in my life. Some of them lasted a sneeze. Some, <laughs> two, two of them were well over 20 years. The one I'm running now is well over 20 years old. And um, I was in technology from 84 to 2004, and I'm so sick and tired of it. Sitting in front of a computer is boring for me, so I stay away from that. So I leave the apps to, to everybody else. Yeah. Um, but the community building yeah. is one piece that I'm really uh, dedicated and interested in. 
and you know so that's that's what i spend a lot of time doing is doing tours here at the urban farm and really getting people engaged in the possibility that hey you could actually grow food in your yard but the other thing is that here, here at the urban farm i actually bought a tower garden it's a hydroponic growing system from juice plus mm-hmm. about eight years ago now i have a third of an acre that's 12,000 square feet. That's a lot of growing dirt. Yep. And I have a tower garden that stands about five feet tall and is, uh, I've got about a two foot diameter, uh, footprint on the ground. And we grow greens in that all year round inside Mm. because our salad greens, we can't grow in, um, in the summertime Mm -hmm. and really from about April 1st to about October 1st, I can't grow it outside because it's too hot. Yeah. Back to your technology question. I go that direction with technology, like tower gardens and playing with other growing systems like that. Gotcha. And do you feel that, uh, because there's sort of talk about the scientific side of um, hydroponics lacking the vitality of food Mm -hmm. grown in in soil, in rich topsoil, Mm -hmm. Um, how do you feel about that? as someone who's been experienced with it. Yeah. So the single most important thing we can be doing is in growing anything Mm. in the ground is to build healthy soil. Mm. The, what I know about the biology of soil and how it interacts with the plants is it's from a nature perspective, it's mind blowing. Mm. It's absolutely mind blowing. So I do pause with hydroponics and aeroponics with the tower garden. And it's probably not as nutritious, Mm. but the truth of the matter is we have almost 8 billion people on the planet to feed Mm. and we have to figure out how to feed. (laughs) Still better than eating Cheerios. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. That's a really good way of putting it. Still better than eating Cheerios. Mm. Nice. Um, So I want to talk about some of the challenges you had uh, establishing your garden when you were in your learning phase and going Mm -hmm. to the courses, because a lot of people think, oh, well, that's easy for you. You were always naturally, you know, you had a natural aptitude towards gardening. It's your thing. Like for me, it's not my thing. I would find it super hard, people say. And so there's a real mental block, I think. People think it's just going to be an enormously difficult uh, exercise to establish a food garden. Mm-hmm. What were some of the challenges that may had you scratching your head and made you think, oh my gosh, this really is tough. How am I going to do this? Um, just so that we know you're a real person, Greg, and you, right. <laughs> you went through real challenges. Yeah. Everyone can do this. So first of all, you're going to kill some plants. Get mm-hmm. over it. Yeah, nice. I promise you, <laughs> anybody that's listening out there, I promise you, I have killed many more plants than you have not on purpose. It just happens. And then it's like, well, okay, I won't do that again. And growing food is really just a process of learning, figuring it out, paying attention, observation. The the basic premise of permaculture is observation. And When you kill a plant, you observe what happened. Maybe you planted in the wrong place. 
Maybe you put a garden where there's a place in your yard that doesn't get any sun. And I've done all that, by the way. Mm. Uh, maybe you planted a fruit tree that wasn't right for your neighborhood, your area, your climate. I've done that. Um, you know, maybe the tomato. Okay, so here's the real person part. I have this amazing garden bed in my front yard. It's the garden bed that I grow a majority of the food in is in my front yard. Mm -hmm. And this past season, we planted eight heirloom tomatoes in that garden bed. Wow. And for whatever reason, I think we got about six tomatoes off of them. They just failed to thrive. It happens. And so we have to now remember, I've been growing food since 1975. That's like 45 years ago. And just this past season, I had eight to six or eight tomato plants that just didn't make it. I ended up pulling them out because they just didn't thrive. It happened. So, okay, I won't do that again. You know, I probably will hold off on putting tomatoes in that garden bed for a couple of years. Um, but having a green thumb isn't, even with me, isn't something that just automatically happens. You have to be willing to go out there, experiment, figure things out, plant things. If they die, it's just take a deep breath, observe why, you, why they didn't make it mm. and move forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we could say having a green thumb, being born with a green thumb is actually a myth. Yes. Yeah. Because you have to learn it. Yeah. I mean, you know, did you learn how to uh, um, take a shower when you were a kid? Mm. Yeah. Did you learn how to drive when you were a kid? Yeah. So you don't come into the world knowing how to drive. You had to learn it. You don't mm. come in the world knowing how to grow food. You had to learn it. Mm. So if someone grew up in a highly urbanized context, you know, always being able to buy their food, mm-hmm. never really having to connect, um, have you ever successfully converted people who are like, I'm just going to buy this. Why do I have to grow it? Uh, and what it must be pretty magical watching people uh, start to connect and, and grow things and, and become like a kid in a candy store. Yes. And here's the thing about what I do. I don't convince anybody of anything. Mm. What I do is I hold out this model of growing food kind of, so imagine me, I've got my hand out in front of me and, and in my hand is this concept of urban farming. Mm-hmm. And I share about it. I do tours of my place. I talk passionately. You can tell that, right? I talk passionately about it and I let people come to me when they're ready. So the people that come to me that are interested in this stuff um, they're ready and engageable and everybody else, you know, I hope that they get a taste for food one of these days and, uh, come to me or come to you and say, you know what, let's get this going. Yeah. Well, more and more people are, that's for sure. Yeah, Big time. Um, and how would you recommend people get in touch with their own microclimate where they are like what are some of the things we can do to start to get to know our place literally and 
and start to think about what's going to grow well there. I mean, you can read things in books, of course, Mm -hmm. but I'm sure there are visual cues, water cues, like things that help us really get connected, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So number one, if you're going to start a garden, I would find a planting calendar for your area. Mm -hmm. So if I was in Phoenix, I would type in Phoenix planting calendar and see what comes up. Yeah. And that will tell you the right time of year to plant. Mm-hmm. What? Because so you, we can't count on nurseries to make sure that they bring us the right stuff. We can't count on big box stores. Um, oh yeah. Cause you could buy anything in a home Depot or a Bunnings right? here in Australia. Literally yeah. every type of vegetable has a little mini seedling pot every day of the year and so if you weren't experienced you would just go oh yeah i'll grow some beans and like in the totally wrong month exactly Mm. so i actually uh was doing a news segment a couple of years ago and they asked me to stop by a big box store and just kind of do a survey and of the i would say 100 or so things that i was able to observe at the big box store over half of them were not climate appropriate for our area which wow. means they would never make food they had strawberries there were wonderful strawberries but they would never grow here mm-hmm. they wouldn't grow and produce here so knowing what to plant when is a really important piece uh, the second thing to do is go out and spend time in your growing space mm. i say it barefooted if you can and just get to know what's where. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I on the, the solstices and the, um, the summer and winter solstice and, oh my gosh, the spring and fall one, mm. equinox, yeah. uh, go out at noon, actually go out at 7 a.m. noon and 5 p.m. on each four of those four days and look to see where the sun is at. Mm-hmm. Because in the northern hemisphere where I'm at, if you put a garden on the north side of a house, a north side of a structure, it's never going to get sun. So it's not going to grow. Yeah. And I believe it's exactly opposite for you in, here in the southern. Yeah. yeah. So if you plant a garden on the southern, southern side of your house or structure, it's unlikely it's going to get enough sun to grow. Mm. So pay attention to that. One of the things that I've gotten really good at because we live in drylands here is when I walk onto a property, I get really clear where the water's coming from and where it's going. Mm-hmm. So spend time on your site, pay attention to the water flow. Uh, you know, you may have city water, well water, river water, where's the water coming from? Where's it going? Um, and then number three, pay really good attention to your soil. Yeah. Creating healthy soil is the single most important thing that you can do. Mm-hmm. And how do you do that? What does that look like for you in terms of a, a ritual, a, a set of uh, things that you do over a week, month, year? On the soil? Yeah. Well, it depends. Mm-hmm. And the, the it depends part is the uh, permaculture piece coming out of me. Um, mm-hmm. It depends what you have. Most, well, I can't speak for soils not in the Phoenix area where I live, but Mm. most places here in Phoenix, we have heavy clay soil. Yeah. That's all you have is clay or sand. 
good luck trying to grow anything. Mm -hmm. It's just not going to grow. We have less than 1% organic matter in our, in our dirt here in Phoenix. So, right. There's five components of healthy soil. Dirt is one of them. Dirt has an amazing amount of um, micronutrients in it that are held up in it Mm -hmm. because there's not enough organic matter, airspace, water, and life in the soil. So what I do is I add lots and lots and lots of organic matter. Add lots of uh, uh, compost Mm -hmm. um, for areas that I'm not going to be growing in anytime soon. I will get a truckload or two or three or four of woody mulch. Mm -hmm. This is just wood chip mulch and put it in the pathways. Uh, If I have a client with a big dirt backyard, the first thing that I will have them do is put down six to 12 inches of woody mulch. Because what happened, yeah, what happens at that interface between the the dirt and the woody mulch, you know, six to 12 inches down is within about 30 to 60 days, the, the soil starts building amazingly well. You get this interface of great soil that mm-hmm. grows and grows and grows more over time. It just needed a good big cover over it for a while. Yeah. Mm. You, you kind of got to think like a forest thinks, you know, yeah. in, a forest, in a forest, there's uh you know, animals come along, they leave a deposit, they, the leaves fall, branches fall, that breaks down. And over time, you get this really healthy, great soil. Mm. And what we generally do in our area is we go in and when we build a house and we completely scrape the property clean. Yep. And it's just right down to dirt. And so, yeah, add lots and lots and lots of organic matter. Yep. And um, with your compost, is that something that you are um, that you actively source uh, vegetable waste, um, uh, animal um, uh, poop, and and all that kind of stuff? And do you build your compost on site, or do you often find yourself having to bring it in with a third of an acre? If you were asking me this question four years ago, I would say I brought it all in. Uh huh. Um, I have some friends who own a restaurant here in town and Uh um, I'm loving it. This is great. Yeah. Yeah. About three years ago, I started a conversation with Karen. I said, what do you do with all that food waste? And she said, oh, it goes out in the five gallon buckets into the trash. Mm, Crazy. I said bucket and all. And she said, yeah, bucket and all. So uh, I go down once a week and I get a five gallon pail times about six or eight. So I get six or eight, five gallon pails a week from her. And they go into my regenerative composting system here at the urban farm. Yep. And in my regenerative composting system, we have chickens, we have worms. I've done black soldier flies in the past. Black soldier flies convert uh, waste, food waste into protein and then composting. Mm. So this food waste comes up the driveway. The kitchen waste comes uh, from the kitchen. Uh, We actually have three or four people that bring us their kitchen waste as well. And after the chickens get done with it or anything that's left over with the chickens or the worms, it goes into uh, two compost bins Mm -hmm. that I actually compost out. And for the past couple of years, 
I've had, um, I've collected enough food waste and so that's the greens and then the browns are from my neighborhood for li from leaves. Um, I've collected enough greens and browns that I don't have to buy compost anymore. Fantastic. Yeah. And, and you're on a relatively big block. So, you know, those, those with like a tiny little square backyard could easily do it themselves. Yeah. Mm. And if you just have, if you just have kitchen scraps mm. from one house, uh, the best thing to do is get a worm, worm bin. Yeah. That's what we've got. Yeah. Mm. You know, worm castings or worm poop is the best stuff you can put in your garden. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's something like we're in an apartment, but we've got a really big balcony and mm -hmm. uh, it means we can be a part of that. And anyone can yeah. have a worm farm as long as you've got a, an outdoor space of some kind. Yeah. Um, I know some apartment blocks who have all worked together to establish a couple of worm farms by the bins where everyone puts their trash so that oh, you go yeah. down and you put your vegetable waste in the worm bins and you put your other trash in the um you know, the actual trash. Nice. Because, because scraps are not trash at all. Yeah. And they're an incredible resource. And so that is the kind of thing that like you were talking about, oh, I hate tech. I, I want community. This is the kind of thing that we need to start instigating those community conversations where Amen. people get together and say, what can we do together? Like surely yeah. we can do something. And what does that look like for us? Right. Mm. And when so, I've... sorry, go. Yeah, so I, I've said for years, um, and I usually use the S word, but I'll say compost happens because <laughs> somebody says so. And I'm not just talking about compost. I'm, I'm talking about how things happen in the world. Yeah, yeah. You know, somebody takes on, you know, I'm going to transform the global food system. Mm -hmm. Or they take on, I'm going to start a worm farm. Or they take on, I'm going to create a community garden. And it happens because somebody says so. Yeah. That is so important. We need to take on things, especially around food. Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, you were talking about the environmental impact of moving food around. Mm. Um, but it's also the nutritional impact. The further it gets oh, away oh, from oh. its source, the longer it is out of the ground before it yeah. hits the plate the vitality of that food, the nutrients in that food start depleting. Something like 90% of the vitamin K naturally found in asparagus is gone by the time it hits the food, the, the plate for dinner. Yep. Um, well, with, and that's not, that's only half of it. Yeah, exactly. You want to hear the other low tox half of it? Yeah, go for it. So there is something called a lectin in plants. Mm-hmm. One of my permaculture teacher calls it an anti-nutrient. Yeah. And if you get too many lectins, they can poison you. It's not a good thing. And the nightshades have more lectins in them. Um, and what happens with these plants when a peach or a tomato or a zucchini ripens on the vine? the lectins, as it's ripening, they decrease over time. Mm -hmm. If you pull that tomato or that peach off of the tree before it's ripe, it's still full of lectins. Wow. So you're getting, you're missing out on the process of 
it getting harvested locally and getting on your plate when it's ripe because you're you're getting bombarded with more lectins. Mm -hmm. That is fascinating. I love how nerdy that is. I never came across that before. And I'll tell you, but you know, it just, it just highlights that it is not the what with food. So often it is the how, how is it grown? How long did it take to get to you? Yep. How was it stored? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm, incredible. And so I want to ask you about water because you obviously live somewhere where it's not exactly abundant and easy mm-hmm. to come by. Right. Um, but you ensure um, what you call abundant water farming. Um, uh, you, so you seem to have enough to, to have an absolutely thriving urban farm. How do you go about making sure you have enough water for your farm? Well, really what it all boils down to is what technologies, and all right, so you asked me about technologies earlier, what technologies are we using? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm just going to uh, focus in on one. Mm. There's a product on the market called drip tape. Yeah. Drip tape is used by farmers mm-hmm. on small to large farms. Yeah. It is a lay flat, low pressure system that delivers an equal amount of water through the entire system before it starts leaking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it'll use significantly less water than, say, flood irrigation. Mm hmm. So uh, I'm a big proponent and I teach about drip tape and using drip tape. Um, you know, hydroponics is another way, a great way to reduce the, uh, you know, your water usage in growing food. Uh, you know, we, we do live in a drought right now that nobody seems to be paying attention to, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's going to be interesting to see where, where this all goes over the course of the next 10 to 20 years. Um, I have significant concerns about that and about water. Uh, as far as water here at the urban farm, I have a, uh, a very unique um, way to get water. Doesn't happen for very many people in the world. I get something called flood irrigation. Flood irrigation is a system by which water is delivered in canal waters delivered in pipes to my house. And I have this because I used, I have an old piece of agricultural land. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I, I suspect if this drought continues that our, um, our flood water is gonna cut, get cut way back. Uh, in which case I would just replace everything with drip tape. Yeah. Um, that's the other thing about putting in edible landscapes. You know, in, in our town, there are millions of trees and plants that aren't edible. Mm. Why would anybody plant something you couldn't eat, especially these days? Yeah. So yeah. I just really encourage people to grow food. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, imagine if the nature strips in cities were lined with apple trees and lemon trees and people could grab a couple on the way home. And Right. Yeah, so much. That goes so- back to the conversation that food is free. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And so um, speaking to free food, let's talk seed saving. Um, ah, yes. Because this is something that some people feel a bit lost by. They're not too sure how to get started. Can you give mm-hmm. us some tips for the, the 
burgeoning gardeners out there who are going to be definitely establishing gardens after this chat. <laughs> right. Uh, so number one, plant open pollinated seeds. Okay. There are three different kinds of seeds. You've heard, I'm sure you've heard of genetically modified seeds. The good news is, is that for the most part, we don't have to deal with that as home gardeners. Um, I'll let people do their own research on that. Then there are hybrid seeds. Hybrid seeds are where they take watermelon A and cross it with watermelon B, and they come up with watermelon C, which is, oh, seedless mm. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And um, they don't produce true when you save the seeds. Right. So okay. you're after something called an heirloom or an open pollinated seed. Mm -hmm. Those kinds of seeds, like an Armenian cucumber, if you save an, a seed from an Armenian cucumber and plant it, mm -hmm. um, you'll get an Armenian cucumber. Got it. Now, if you save a hybrid pepper, um, you may or may not get any peppers from that plant. Um, but if you do, you know, there could be peppers from it. But what happens after that sa saved seed is planted from a hybrid, it starts to de-evolve. Mm -hmm. um, now, are hybrids bad? No, not necessarily. Um, I plant hybrids when, you know, when it's appropriate, but mostly I use the open pollinated seeds. So that's number one. Number two, let, uh, so you've got a row of lettuce that you're growing and one of them or two of them are particularly good. Mm. At the end of the, their growing season, what will happen, especially with, with uh, lettuce, is they keep growing out of the center and if you, you can harvest it all the, all the way up and a lettuce can get three feet tall. Yeah. The moment it starts going to seed, the lettuce gets bitter. Mm -hmm. Let it go to seed. So pick two or three of your best lettuce plants or best cucumber plants or zucchini plants or tomato plants and let them go to seed and save the seeds. Nice. Yeah, that's really the simplest thing. And then plant them again next year. One lettuce plant, one carrot plant can produce enough seeds that you will never have to buy seeds again. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really is. Mm. And I think part of the, the challenge is actually having us break away from this, if I want something, I need to buy it. Like it, mm -hmm. it has to be bought. It has to come from out there. Right. Um, and we have to start realizing it. the magic can come from right here uh, mm -hmm. if we cultivate it. Well, and that's, remember the old growth food forest we talked about earlier? Mm, yeah. Yeah. So in my yard throughout the year, so I'm just going to name off a list of the, the simple stuff I can remember. Mm -hmm. that is edible, that comes back year after year without me doing anything. Parsley, nasturtiums, lettuce, celery, kale, um, cowpeas, beans, um, um, cilantro, oregano, thyme. These are things that just come back year after year. Sweet potatoes, um, Jerusalem artichokes, that they're just in my landscape and by letting them be and nurturing the soil, they just come back year after year after year. And yeah. Wow. Yeah. And I think from what you've said and from um, people out there thinking, 
how am I how am I going to do this? It really is just about starting and seeing what you yeah. notice over the years. Yeah, exactly. Mm. I mean, and the simplest thing to grow and the most expensive thing to buy in the store is herbs. Yes. Yeah. Thyme, oregano, basil, cilantro. You can even do that in a sunny windowsill. Yeah. In fact, what I do when we go on vacation is um, one of the grocery stores uh, in San Diego where we vacation at has an organic uh, basil plant that they sell. Mm -hmm. So when we get over there at the grocery store, we buy the organic basil plant and we eat the basil throughout the week and then we bring it home and I put it in the ground. Oh, I love it. Right. How does it go in Phoenix? Oh, great. Awesome. Oh, basil does. I was just out in my front yard cleaning, doing some uh, garden bed cleaning this morning. Oh, yeah. It's peak basil time for you over there. Oh, huge. I have three foot tall basil plants in my front yard. Beautiful. Oh, yeah. That's the other thing that comes back year after year. Just, you know, basil just grows. Time to make pesto. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Greg, it has been such a joy chatting to you. I feel like um, anyone out there who was maybe a little bit hesitant or who has had a few goes and failed just might be on their way back to reestablishing a connection with their little patch or whatever they have out back or in on the balcony. Um, I will ask you one final question um, just for you on a personal level. I know you have a podcast, you have fantastic online courses uh, to get people more engaged, more connected. Um, what are you most excited about as you look around having started this decades ago, what excites you about the, the immediate future and what you're seeing? This is going to sound like a funny answer, (laughs) but (laughs) the catalyst was COVID. Interesting. Yeah. Well, so many more people are growing food this past year. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. We've engaged with like four times as many people in the past year and a half Mm. out of, you know, out of this whole COVID thing. Now, you know, COVID's not a good thing, but People getting engaged with where their food comes from. Listen, we have a three-day supply of food in any urban area, in any grocery store. Yeah. Once something happens, once something hits the fan, Mm. it's about three hours. Yeah. And we actually saw that happen here in the United States, especially with toilet paper. Oh, my gosh. So did we. What was with that? Jeez. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Who knows? But we had grocery store shelves that didn't have food on them mm-hmm. or yeah. weeks at a time. Yeah. And the, the other thing that happened, we had horrendous storms in uh, Texas and uh, this past winter mm. had the same thing. Excuse me. Had the same thing happen with empty grocery store shelves. Yeah. So we have to get wake up around where our food comes from and how to grow it because we cannot count on this global food system. First no. of all, it's quite, it's quite toxic and both for the people eating it and the planet, the way it's raised and we've got to get local. And yeah. so, yeah, the, the COVID thing that happened is, has exploded my business and, that and the is- amount of people that I talked to. Yeah, that is for me a a really beautiful sign of, 
you know, things don't necessarily happen for a reason, but we make reasons out of the bad things that happen so that we actually can grow and um, become better out of them. And if, if COVID means more people are growing food locally, then that is definitely a good thing to come out of a bad thing. So thank you, Greg. I really appreciate your time. I love the work that you do. We're going to connect all the people listening today to your work via the show notes, which you guys can jump into and, um, and uh, yeah, have a beautiful, beautiful afternoon in Arizona. Thank you. Thank you. And you can find out our, find our website at urbanfarm.org. Awesome. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed today's interview. And I want to remind you that you can come join me on social on Instagram at lotoxlife or one word, or my personal Instagram uh, at underscore Alex with two X's, Stuart, S-T-U-A-R-T. On Facebook, you can find us at Lotox Life. Uh, and of course, lotoxlife.com. And if you want additional support and community around leading a low-tox life, I can't recommend a better thing to do than to come join us at the Low-Tox Club for just $49 Australian per year, which is about $29.30 US, about €27 and about £25. You get a stack of club member perks and the benefit of a beautiful private Facebook community. So check out the website, lotoxlife.com, hit the explore tab and you'll see join the Lotox Club as your very first option there. I hope to see you in there. If not, I will see you in our wider community sometime soon. Thanks again for tuning in.